So let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to uh, John chapter 15. I'm continuing on, on the second part of the secrets of a productive Christian. And as you read through this section of Scripture, you will find that it does teach the most important relationships a Christian must maintain to be productive. And the first important relationship is with Christ himself. And the key term, as I've mentioned from from verse 1 through 11, is to abide. The emphasis is, is on union. The second important relationship is with other believers from verse 12 through 17, and the, the key uh, term in that, those passages is love, and it emphasizes communion. And of course, the third relationship is the believer's relation to the world. In verse 18 through 27, and the key term there is hate. The emphasis is on disunion. So from union with Christ, which leads to communion with each other, which leads to disunion with the world. We're detaching from the world. And because the first relationship, of course, is the most vital, that is in Christ, uh, that's where we're going to focus today. And then I'm going to backtrack a little bit and just kind of flesh out what a particular point means uh, in more detail. But as we look at this passage in John chapter 15, I want you to notice that it's giving, it's giving us a visual per, uh, picture of the vine branches that are connected to the vine and then the vine dresser. The vine, in verse number 1, it says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So the vine is Jesus and the imagery of the vine and the vine, the vineyard, is really a familiar one in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. But one of the points to his disciples is that he wants them not to be like old Israel. Because old Israel was the vine of God and the Lord had to finally um, burn that vine and cut it down because they were not the witness that they should have been. The vine dresser is the Father, the Heavenly Father. So God the Father is pictured as a faithful gardener busily working in the vineyard. And, of course, the branch or the branches are all the followers of Christ. In verse number 5 of chapter 15, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the main subject in this section is abiding, meaning having a vital union with Christ and becoming an effective and a productive disciple of Christ. So the result of abiding is always fruit-bearing. There are three degrees I've mentioned already of fruit-bearing. Uh, In verse number 2, we see that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. 
And then in verse number 2, or verse number 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So it's fruit, more fruit, and then much fruit. So the more that we understand that the command is to abide in Christ, the more fruit we will have in our life, the more fruit God will produce in our life. So if there is no fruit, whatever, the branch is taken away. The Father desires Christ's disciples to bear much fruit. The vine dresser, who is the Father, is not content whatsoever with any kind of mediocre disciples. So there is an element in this passage of Scripture of secrecy. In our passage, because Jesus is not addressing a multitude of people, but really is uh, intimately speaking with his disciples, Jesus tells his disciples the secret of productive ministry, the secret of being a productive disciple. And the first secret that I've mentioned already in verse 1 through 3 is the secret uh, of the pruning of the Father. Now, if you notice again in verse number 2, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And then he says in verse 3, you are already clean because the word of God which I have spoken to you. Now, there's two actions of the vine dresser. The vine dresser does something with the branch that isn't bearing any fruit at all. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, it says. Also, secondly, the vine dresser does something with the branch that isn't bearing enough fruit. Where he says in verse 2, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And of course, this Greek term for prune means to make clean, to cut away, to trim unwanted growth. See, the father, as the vine dresser, does this. He prunes and cleans away unwanted growth in our Christian life. And so he does that so the branches that are connected to the true vine will produce more fruit and more fruit and more fruit. Now, the word of God set you apart when you received Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the word clears, clears away unwanted growth is that the word of God is the means used by the Father to perform the work of pruning his disciples. He says in verse number three, you are already clean. You are already, in a sense, pruned from the world and connected now to the vine. And now that pruning process will continue the rest of one's Christian life. So true disciples of Jesus not only receive his word, but they keep his word. And of course, John chapter 14 tells us that he will, they will keep my word and the Father will love him and he will come to him and make 
his abode with his disciples. Also in our passage, there are two kinds of branches branches mentioned, those who produce fruit and those who lack the production of fruit. Now, every branch in me, in verse number two, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, saying that, we must consider that we're really nothing if we are away from Jesus Christ. We would really then be branches only to wither, uh, fit only to be cast on a pile of other branches that are not bearing fruit to be put into the fire. So we're, we're not just to come and go as we please in regard to Jesus, but are to abide in Jesus. The vine needs the branch as truly as the branch needs the vine. No vine ever bore any fruit except upon being connected to Christ. Now, if, if you are a Christian today, then the sharp knife of the Father purging and pruning will be applied to every one of us at, at different points in our Christian walk. Now, if you are now at this particular point feeling the pruning process or the disciplining process of the Lord... You must not think it some kind of unusual thing that's happening to you because God is going to clear away, he's going to cut away everything in our life, everything that is preventing me and you from bearing more fruit, more fruit of Christ-likeness, more fruit of putting off our sin, more fruit of all those kinds of things. So, So take care that... This morning and every day of your life, you and I ought to abide in Christ, and especially when the pruner, the pruner's blade is cutting closely in our life. We, at that point, should be clinging more to Jesus to endure the trial and never dream of giving up. Never dream at all of giving up following Christ during the hard times. So the Christian has this inside knowledge that he is a branch connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, and it is the will of God that his disciples bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Now, just as in horticulture, pruning could be unusual in some ways and painful, so is it, it is in the Christian experience. As his word works in us to transform our minds away from the way we used to think to living for Christ and thinking in a way that honors God, that will bring ultimately effective service. We, o- we understand only when a hard pruning comes from the Father can we produce greater fragrance and greater beauty and greater fruit in the Christian walk. Now, so that means that if you want to be a productive Christian, you must be pruned. See, that, that is really the first secret. Now, I've mentioned that already. I want to expand on that on a bit this morning. But the second secret 
found in verse number 4 and 5 of a productive Christian is remaining in the Son. And notice what it says. It says in verse 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So the secret is, you cannot bear fruit on your own. It is not possible. It is not humanly possible. It is Christ's work in us. That is what he is doing in us. In fact, that's the the great difference between before you became a believer and now after you became a believer, that the Spirit of God indwells you and Christ is working in you to bear fruit, to make you different. So here is the issue, abiding or remaining, which has to do with our continual fellowship with the Lord and fruit-bearing as a result of abiding in Christ. So there is an active responsibility, and it's found in verse number four. It's an imperative. It's a command. Abide in me. And of course, the command is given to those who are already branches. So this is not a command to come and be saved. This is a command to stay following, stay remaining with, abiding with Jesus, following him as a disciple. And the reason for that in verse number four, because a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So when we are abiding, fruit comes naturally. When we are communing with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, fruit comes and will be produced in our life. When we are depending in Christ in prayer, that is part of the fruit of growing in the Lord. We're praying. We're depending upon him. We realize we can't do it all by ourselves. Life is too complicated. The Christian life is impossible without this happening in our life. Also, submitting to Christ in all things. In other words, separated from Christ, there is no fruit. But connected to Christ, there is fruit. Jesus is the life. In other words, when you become a believer, you know God. That's the difference, that God is our Father, that we are his children. And isn't that the point? The point is to know Christ, to get to know him more and more, to realize that there is so much more to know about the Lord Jesus Christ than just saying, I believe in you, or I accept you as Lord and Savior, or receive you as Lord and Savior. It is an ongoing, everyday process by the Spirit of God to bring you and I to a place that we're obeying that command to abide in Christ. Now, I I had read a story of an old Christian woman whose, whose age began to show in her memory. She had once known the Bible by heart. Eventually, only one precious bit stayed with her. And it's the verse, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. As time went on, 
Um, she only began to repeat part of that. She started to repeat that which I have committed unto him. That's all she could remember. At last, she came to the point where she was going to pass on to be with the Lord, and her loved ones gathered around her, and they noticed her lips were moving, and so they bent down to, to see if she needed anything. And she was repeating over and over to herself the one last word of the text. Him, him, him. Now she lost the whole of the Bible, but one word. But she had the whole Bible in that one word, and that is Jesus Christ. See, that is the point of abiding. That every day of our lives, we are going to want more of him until we are face-to-face with him in glory. And see, that is, the, that is the normal and natural progression of all Christians. If you never had that, you may need to question your salvation. You know, it is, it is something that it grows in your heart where you come to the point where you know you can't live, leave Christ. There's nowhere to go. Where are we going to go? So, see, that's the active responsibility. But there is a passive response of bearing fruit. And it is the command. It is, the command is not to produce fruit. The command is to abide. That's what we are to do. Christ is the one who produces the fruit. So in verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we don't abide in Christ, disciples cannot produce even a bud of real fruit. So without a vital relationship with Christ, nothing of genuine eternal value can be produced in our life. But there's a consequence of not bearing fruit. There's a consequence of being barren. And it's if you look at verse 6, it says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So a disciple can become a barren branch in which they become useless. Useless branches, all leaves, no fruit. Of course, I mentioned some of that from last message, so I'm not going to go back there, about some of the difficulty of that. So when this happens, when the father comes to prune, because he's the vine dresser, he comes in and he cleans up your life and my life. And he does it with a disciplinary hand. It may be that the Father will sanctify you through some circumstance of life or by some trial the Father weans us off some worldly thinking or some bad habit or some besetting sin. When he does that, he then draws us to Christ more and more. And then when he does that, he drives us to the Bible, the Word of God. He drives us to the fellowship of believers. He drives us to prayer. And while he shows you and I at that same time 
our hearts and what's really in our heart and what we need to get rid of from our heart. See, that's what he does. So the Father chastens us, not to harm us, but to make us more fruitful, that we may partake of his holiness. And believe me, when you're producing fruit, you are going to be in a place of joy. You are going to be in a place of happiness. You are going in a place of God's peace in your heart. And that's really what the world wants, but they cannot have it. It's only given to God's kids. And sometimes God's kids don't necessarily experience it right away because they're bucking God's pruning process. They're actually standing in the way of what the Spirit of God wants to do. Now, with that thought, the scripture that was read this morning in Hebrews, I'd like you to turn there, and I want to look now at some, some things in Hebrews, some things in Proverbs. For in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, the Bible says that the Father chastises us here, and notice what it says. It's for, it says in verse number 10 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, for they, that's our fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Now notice verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems to not be joyful but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a the peaceful, the peace of peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, our heavenly Father, who is the vine dresser, will not spare his pruning knife if he sees we need it. And that also means that God may not prune you like he prunes someone else. It's just like when we have children. If you have children, you know that all your children are completely different. Right? One is active and aggressive, one's passive and quiet. Right? One has one bent to be creative, another has one bent to be mechanical. And so our kids are different, so we have to deal with our kids according to the bent that they have in their life. But our kids are also going to have a bent to sin. Some kids are going to be bent to sin where they lie all the time. Some kids are going to be bent to sin where they are angry very quickly all the time. So it's part of the parent's job to take that particular bent in their life and sanctify it by giving them the word of God and teaching them what God requires in their life about how to handle those things. Of course, apart from conversion, we are not miracle workers as parents, but nonetheless, that's what we are called to do. Now, as believers, there is actually, I want to, at this particular point, I want to really draw your attention to what the Scripture teaches about divine discipline. It's not only helpful for the Christian life, but it's also helpful for, for parenting. And I want you to notice that in Hebrews chapter 1, we have a passage that says, in the middle of the passage, it says, let 
us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, so the first thing is that there is a a nature and definition of divine discipline. I must make clear to you that the pruning and disciplining process is different than punishment. It is not punishment. The word punishment means retribution from God, which is really intended to do some sometimes harm. But discipline means disciplining and chastening, the chastening process in which God intends to do us good. It's like what Paul, the Apostle Paul, said in 1 Corinthians, where he views this disciplining process not as a result of condemnation, where he says, for this reason many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now, that's in the context of the Lord's table, which we're going to have this morning. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for discipline really means correction, instruction. Uh, it even has the verb means to uh, to train or to bring training of an individual, especially in areas where he or she is ignorant or unruly or does not want to be told at all. The Greek word uh, is often uh, mentioned and uh, used in the same way, to train, to teach, to discipline, to correct. It is a word that is used also to take one into the school. And of course, to do that, you would have to teach them something. So one definition has been suggested as whatever parents and teachers do to train, correct, and cultivate and educate children in order to help develop and mature them. Now, if you just peruse the the book of Proverbs, which is the wisdom book, you're going to find passages of scriptures like this, like Proverbs 19.18, discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. So here's a command uh, for the parent to discipline their son. And then Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son, and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. It was Arthur Pink, uh, an old preacher from days gone by, who said divine discipline is God correcting you in love, and not smiting you in wrath. So Proverbs views discipline as a necessary feature of the educational process, which helps really form a child's character and sharpen a child's listening skills. But discipline is not always for disobedience or rebellion, but it's always for the good of the recipient. Now, Let's, let's look at some biblical examples and, uh, and just uh, see that God uses divine discipline in, in, a, in a... I'm just going to use three ways this morning. And the first way is really found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1, which I read part of that passage, right? That he does it first for correction. That God used and uses discipline for personal transgression. Now, if you notice what it says here in Hebrews, uh, 
it talks about weights that impede performance and sin that easily entangles us in running the Christian race. There are two general areas which we may uh, pay close attention to and then be deliberate about being responsible to lay those things aside. In the first one, in verse number one, it says to let us lay aside every encumbrance. And why is that? Let us run with endurance the race set before us. So it's the picture of running in a race, and that's really the Christian life. We're running in a race. And in running the race, there are weights that need to be laid aside from our life. Now, the weights are not necessarily sinful. They, but they are just as an athlete would strip for action both in the, the removal of extra body weight through, rigor, through rigorous training and also the removal of all kinds of restrictive clothing. It's the same for a believer. We're not, if you were running a race, you're not going to be suited up to be a middle linebacker with the pads and all the gear and the helmet and to run a race. No, you're going to take it all off, right? It's, it's when we are a runner, we want to really take off everything that's going to impede our performance, our forward movement. So that's what we must do. We must strip off everything that impedes our performance. And this is part of the responsibility of a believer, that if you are to travel far, you must travel light. And before you were a Christian, these are the things that you did, and they didn't really hinder you. But now that you're in the race, now that you are abiding in Christ, these things must be discarded. A hindrance is something otherwise good that weighs you down spiritually. All right? It's just not profitable for fruit-bearing. It's not profitable for Christ-likeness. Now, things that you uh, may want to discard are things like bad habits, um, seeking earthly pleasures as one of your main goals in life, just living your life to have leisurely fun, it could be that you're spending way too time on Facebook, on blogging, on the Internet, and you're wasting good time you can be doing other things with. And not only that, you may be feeding your mind with a lot of negative things that should not be there. And so you need to lay those things aside. It could be entertainment. You crave entertainment. You may be the kind of person who wants to follow everybody on Facebook you know, wants to find out what's going on in everybody's life, you know? I guess it's the Cardassian mindset that has infected our culture, right? And that people are really into these things, and they spend hours and hours on it, and, and yet it, it's no profit. So, see, these kind of things could be the very things that you need to lay aside. Worldly ease, uh, the desire to take the path of least resistance, certain associations you may have with groups of people, with friends, even sports, and the time you gave to sports needs to be limited because now you are a believer and it has no profit at all in your life. Eternally, it really doesn't have any profit at all. Now, these are good things that need to be adjusted in your life and discarded, and you may know what they are already, 
Because as soon as you plan to do something for the Lord, they seem to get in the way. They seem to entangle you, where you just can't get out and run the race and, and be freed from those things. A second thing in that passage of Scripture is sin. And it says specifically, it says the sin that easily entangles you. It's failing to hit the mark in this case. It easily surrounds you, maybe consumes your thinking. It prevents you from running. It retards your running. So these could be any particular sins that you get easily entangled with. And you could ask yourself a a simple question. What are the sins that easily ensnare me? And some of those sins could be things that you're thinking in your mind. Maybe it is anger. Maybe it's hatred. Maybe it's, it's uh, criticism, always criticizing. Maybe it's being lazy or coveting something that God's never going to give you. Maybe it's lust or envy. Or maybe you have a complaining or a grumbling spirit. You like to slander people. Maybe it's hypocrisy. You're saying one thing and you're doing another. You're giving one promise, but you're not, you're not keeping your promises. It could be pride. You're looking down at people all the time. It could be greed. You have a, a secret desire to be wealthy and to put all your trust in what money can do. And it could be, and probably the greatest sin of all, is unbelief. I'm a believer, and yet I don't believe because I'm not living out what the Bible is talking about, abiding in Christ. It could be also bitterness. It could be a multitude of things that's going on in your life that when the Father comes, he's going to correct us, and he is going to correct us uh, with the goal of personal transgression, personal sin in the heart that needs to be discarded, that needs to get out of your life. The example, of course, I would use would be David, King David, when he sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery, and then, of course, he ended up being a cohort to murdering her husband so he can have her. And when the prophet came to tell David what he did, David got angry And then realized, the prophet pointed at him, Nathan, and says, you're the man, David, you did this. And then David was deeply convicted. Now, in the Old Testament, if you committed murder and committed adultery, the the penalty was you were stoned to death. But that's not what happened with David. See, the discipline for David was corrective, not judgmental. It was judgmental. If it was judgmental, David would have lost his life, yet... His sin was not without consequences. And that's possibly where the judgment of God came in. He lost an infant son by Bathsheba. Several of his sons caused many serious problems in his life. And the sword never departed from David's house. So many times, sometimes sin in our life could have effects later on. Even though you're forgiven of that sin, the consequences because of that sin will be there in your life, and you have to deal with them in a right way. So God uses the pruning process and the discipline process for personal transgression. Second thing God uses 
the pruning and disciplining process is for that of prevention. He prevents us from doing things. In fact, God disciplines in order to prevent sin. I think a great example of that is the Apostle Paul, where it says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where this is what it says. He says, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, remember, Paul was caught up to the third heaven, and when he was caught up to the third heaven, he was forbidden to talk about what he saw and heard there. Right Now, of course, that could really puff your head up to say, well, I must, I must be some, somebody real special if God did that. Well, it says in Scripture, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So the Apostle Paul was given the discipline not because he was proud, but to prevent him from becoming proud. And sometimes the Lord does that in our life. He will put something in our life that we can pray till the cows come home and it's not going to be removed. Why? Because it's there to prevent you from sinning. It's there to keep a hedge around you. And in in fact... It never left Paul. He prayed three times and it never left him because it acted like a fence around him. And the result of the thorn, the Apostle Paul was made more conscious of his weakness and of God's strength. For he even penned these words, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak in the flesh, then I know God is going to work mightily through me. But if I'm depending on me, if I'm depending on my gifts, my ability, my knowledge, my wealth, my influence, well, you know what? God's not in that. You're in that. It's when you feel your weakness and your vulnerability, but at the same time, you're trusting and abiding in Christ. See, that's what the Lord does when he prunes us. He prunes us to often prevent us from sinning. And aren't you glad when he does that? Aren't you, don't you have joy when God prevented you from sin when you could have sinned? And he kept you from it. It didn't work out. Your plans fell apart. You think that was you? You better be thankful when God prevents you from sinning because that, that's him pruning you. That's from keeping you from a lot of trouble in your life. A lot of heartache in your life when God does that. See, so we should all be thankful that he prunes us in that way. There's a third way that God prunes and disciplines, and that's just in order to instruct. So we are directed towards wise behavior. We learn to move from being foolish to be from being naive to be being wise, to really examining our life and seeing what God is teaching us at that point. Now, instruction often means discipline. Even right now in preaching, this is preventative discipline. When you're hearing the word of God and you're thinking about it, you're applying it to yourself, you're doing discipline on yourself. And if you do that on a regular basis, you'll never be brought up on church discipline. You'll never be brought up on corporal discipline. You know why? Because you're taking care of it. 
and that's what we ought to do as Christians. That's our responsibility. We take care of dealing with the things that are impeding running this race, sins that are hindering us from moving, moving forward and producing fruit in our life. So this instruction that the Lord instructs us in, it's always towards wise behavior and maturity and fruit-bearing. I just think of Job in the Old Testament. Job tasted every kind of suffering that could have fallen on any one person. In fact, it was family bereavement. It was loss of property. It was grievous bodily affection. And they all came fast, one after another. But there, in that suffering, there in that affliction, God used that discipline. He used that pruning to instruct Job in the ways and the character of the Lord God Almighty. That's what he does. He instructs us to pay attention to who he is so we can live in a pleasing manner before the Lord. So that means that God uses discipline to instruct toward a more more fruitfulness and more spiritual maturity. But there's a problem, and this is the problem. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 5, but he's actually bringing this in from Proverbs, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. He's actually bringing this in from Proverbs chapter 11. And, and here's the problem. How do, we, how do we respond to God's pruning and discipline? Is there a problem when we respond the wrong way? So there is a natural and a wrong response to divine discipline. And what is that wrong response? Well, there's two warnings given in the Word of God uh, in Hebrews. And coming from Proverbs, it says, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. And that word reject means to despise or to refuse. It was the, the, the old... Puritan, uh, William Arnaud, who had an insightful definition of the word used in Proverbs and, and also in Hebrews, he said, it means to make light of anything, to cast aside as if it had no meaning or no power. Well, if you look at the Hebrews passage in verse number 5 of chapter 12, it says, you and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The correction of the Lord, the prevention of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord in any manner of where he wants to bring you from one place of growth to another place of growth. Arnaud went on to say, the affliction comes on, and the sufferer looks to the immediate cause only. He refuses to look up higher in the links of the chain. He refuses to make it the occasion to have communion with God. So in other words, in the midst of discipline, in the midst of being pruned, God has a higher purpose for that. While we're going through it, it seems sorrowful and even painful. But in the end, it produces 
peaceable fruit. The fruit that God wants to produce in our life. So it, we are not to reject it. That would be the improper attitude toward discipline. Also, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, also coming from Proverbs 3.11, or loathe his reproof. Here it says, or faint when you are reproved by him. So the Hebrew word means to be grieved or to feel a sickening dread while going through God's hand of pruning, God's hand of discipline. And the reason why that we would feel that way is because we are not yet understanding who God is. God is good. He's full of tender mercy and compassion. Right? And he will always do good to his children. Always. That's who God is. He's dealing with us as children. We're in his family. We're born again into his family. And so he will deal with us in that way. So that means our attitude is extremely important when we're going through suffering, discipline, pruning. Now, how is it? What are the things that can be suggested on responding to God's discipline the wrong way? Well, it could be just your callous. A lack of regard of God's admonitions and instructions. See, the Heavenly Father has some special design in them, but you don't see it. So, it, the, really, the discipline hardens the heart instead of melting and humbling the heart. It could be a second way is that you're just complaining through it. Right? You're grumbling through it. Grumbling, murmuring, belly aching, under the breath remarks. Nobody hears it, God hears it. If you ever go in the Old Testament, you see what God thinks about grumbling, you would change your attitude. But it also, all these things show you don't understand who God is. See, that's the point. So the discipline may be at that point for you to see who God is and how he deals with you as children. So complaining, you may ask, Why do, what have I done to deserve this? A person may become envious because others around them seem to be carrying a lighter load. So Christians, really, we, we need to take heed because God does not go lightly with those who murmur and grumble under their breath. He hears everything. It could be that you're just careless. A failure to mend your ways, to lay aside uh, the things that are preventing you from running the race, to, lay, to fail to lay aside the sin that so easily be, besets you, you're still entertaining that one sin that drags you away from Christ. Or it could be, finally, that you just, as it says here, nor faint when you're reproved by him. Fainting just means that you say, I give up. I, I, it's too much to bear. I didn't sign up for this when I became a Christian. Some people even conclude, I'm not a child of God, I just quit, I'll go do it. I'll, it seemed my, like my life back when I was an unbeliever was simpler than now. And people do that. People have done that in the Old Testament. See, that's the wrong conclusion. And that's how we, that's how we um, loathe God's correction. So, in man's every rejection, they fail to see God. 
They failed to, they failed to see God, the, love, the Father, lovingly at work in the vineyard, on his children, so they abide in Christ and they bear fruit. So they will reap the results of that, which I'm not getting to today. It's going to be another message. See, they take their eyes off the goal. And what is the goal? What is God's will and the goal in our life? What is the goal of pruning and discipling? You know what the goal is? It's the verse that we all know, if you've been a Christian for a while. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, here's the goal, to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That is the goal. And that is what God's going to do in our life. Even, even Psalmist, when he wrote, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Why, why would we think other wise, that we're going to escape this. We don't want to escape it. It also says, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. See, left to ourselves, we all tend to suppress the God-given knowledge and wisdom learned and run after our own evil imaginations that conform more to our liking. Whenever one tends to respond the way, uh, to the way of the good father's wisdom, if they respond reluctantly or defiantly, or they give a good show of external compliance, which veils an unsubordinate heart, see, it's that kind of heart disposition that is to be avoided at all costs. We should humbly come before the Lord, and we should submit to him and because he is good and that he is only doing it for our good. So today you may need to pull some weeds that your attitude toward God's reproof should be that of humility and teachability and look at trials and look at pruning as proof, as proof, as proof that God loves you. God loves to purge and prune and purify you. Job said this, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. Isn't that odd? We would never think that the case. And then he said, Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. And then there's one last thing here, and that is the nurture and encouragement of a divine discipline. And if you notice there in Hebrews, it tells us in verse number 6, it says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. That is the encouragement that we get in Scripture. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son whom he delights. It is hard to see discipline to be good. That's the hard part of it. But see, God intervenes because he loves us and wants to grow in maturity and faith and trust. 
Even the apostle John in Revelation says this. He says, to whom I love, I reprove and discipline. It says there, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Talking about the church, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. See, that's restored fellowship. So that means that discipline should be accepted as part of God's mysterious educational purposes because his discipline is always for our good and his glory and for bearing fruit, always. No matter how clearly God marks out the path of righteousness, some miss it by wandering from the path of wisdom, careless on the path of wisdom, stubborn in the process of leaving the things behind they should and pursuing and submitting to the discipline of God. See, the Lord would need then as a caring father to discipline us and to point out our mistakes and return us to the right road. That's what a loving father does. That's what an earthly loving father does. That's what a heavenly loving father does, and he always does it. So love is always the motivation for any correction, any prevention. So if we take it correctly, and that's what we ought to do, we'll be well-pleasing to the Lord because he delights in us. We also discover that he loves us. And you know that some, I've learned this, that sometimes pruning and discipline is you don't really believe God loves you after you become a Christian. You talk about it, you say it, but you don't live it. See, God wants us to know that he loves us. And you know what? When you're sinning, does he love you less? No. When you fall off the wagon, does he love you less? No. His love is consistent. And that's what we don't often believe. You know, we think... Oh, my life has not been what God wants to do, and he must be far from me, and uh, forget it. I might, as well, I might as well just give up. No, he loves you then because he died for us while we were yet sinners, right? That's the greatest demonstration of love. See, the reward for the patient and grateful acceptance of reproof is the deepening awareness of one's affectionate relation to God, finding God at the center of your life so when you and I die, we can whisper under our breath, Him, Him, Him. My life was lived for Him. See, that's where we ought to be. That's where we ought to be. He who spares his rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him diligently, diligently. So this morning, he speaks to us as children. He wants us to live a Christian life that is joy-filled and peaceful in our heart and is filled with fruit. He wants us to see that he's doing something that he that you didn't have in your life before. So see, suffering is God's means of discipline, of pruning branches on the ground and branches still on the tree. 
on on one, of course, it has no effect. On the other, it produces fruitfulness. That pruning proves God's fatherly love. And if you look at verse number 8 of Hebrews, it says, but if you are without discipline, of which I have become of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So you may want to pray this, Lord, please discipline me. (laughs) Please prune me. Because I know it will be for my good, and you know what? Often we realize we do need it. Because we can get very sloppy as Christians. We can ignore the things that are the most important in our Christian walk in life, and we don't want to do that. So discipline, suffering, pruning also reveals what's in your heart. And sometimes that's an ugly movie when God finally pulls up the screen of your heart and I say, whoa, I did, not, I did not think I was like that. I did not think I acted like that. And when he does, you fall on your knees in repentance and say, Lord, please, please change me. Make me like you. I don't want to be the person I used to be. I want to be this new person you promised in the word of God and make me ready for your presence. That should be our, uh, the end of what we see God doing in our lives. So when we submit to the loving, pruning discipline of an all-wise, all-directing father, Proverbs would call that wisdom. God wants us to be wise children, not foolish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. For the word of God. Lord, you have been to us a kind God, full of mercy, full of compassion, ready to forgive, ready to answer prayer, ready to show us every day your your ability to provide for us. Both on the earthly level and on the spiritual level. Lord, I pray this morning as we consider the Word of God, and Lord, even where the Word of God's going, I I pray that you would just use this message to grab a hold of our hearts so we are ready and willing to submit to you if you decide you need to use the pruning knife in our life. Let us see clearly our own encumbrances, our own sin. Let us see clearly whether you need to correct us or prevent us from sinning or instruct us. And Lord, I pray that all the instruction would lead us only to understand you more and give you more glory and honor so that we can worship you from the bottom of our heart and we can know the peace of God that passes all understanding. And I pray this in the name of my Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.